in, and uh, the kids, uh, before I do that, today is the first Sunday, so our kids, God's Backyard, is going to stay uh, here, um, and then we, no, today's not first Sunday. Yes, it is. It is. Oh, man. Wow. Ah, uh, it's been one of those, it's been one of those weeks. Um, so they're going to be here, they're going to be with us um, up here, and um, we're going to be, we're going to spend some time talking about Joseph, um, and um, so we'll, we'll go from there. I invite you to join with me in another word of prayer, and we're going to get right into the scriptures. Father, once again, we turn our, our attention to your word. And we turn our attention to this first gospel, um, the words of Matthew, of Levi, the disciple, an eyewitness. Lord, we turn our attention to your Holy Spirit speaking through these words to challenge us, to awaken us, to encourage us, to... um, to embolden us, to strengthen us. Lord, may we know Jesus better for being here today. We pray all this in his name. Amen. So we're we're starting last week we started a series on the exalted king or the exiled king, Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew. And um, there's a lot we could say about um, the gospel. I want to. I'm trying to kind of um, parse out a little, uh, uh, partition out all the the history and and ideas and and thoughts that are going into this. But uh, today, I, I want to just remind you, as we read the Gospel of Matthew, that Matthew's gospel um, is the most Jewish of the four gospels. Each gospel has its own perspective, um, and the other three, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, they are. They're, they're somewhat focused on blending um, the Jewish mind and, and the Gentile mind, the, the Greek-Roman thinking. John's gospel is very, very Greek. Uh, Mark's gospel is very Roman. Uh, Luke's gospel is, is very much uh, a merger of the two, uh, the two mindsets. And, and so each one uses its own style, its own rhetoric, its own structure. G- Matthew really focuses on... Um, he really, really focuses on the idea of Jesus as um, the exiled king, the son of David, um, and also the obedient son is, a, is another theme um, that, that pervades uh, the, the book of Matthew, um, an idea that comes out of the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll, we'll bring that up. Um, it is, in my opinion, and not all scholars agree, um, there are those that disagree with me, and, and they have a right to be wrong, um, but uh, uh, Matthew's, gospel, Matthew's gospel is, in my opinion, the first gospel written. Um, a lot of people say that it's the gospel of Mark. That idea comes out of the uh, 1800s. It, it didn't exist before then, um, and it has to do with the fact that Mark does not have uh, as much supernatural activity in it. It's a much shorter uh, versions of the stories, uh, the narrative than Matthew has, and so there's that theory, and, and if you read a lot about the gospels, you'll encounter that. Um, I happen to think that the early church put Matthew first, and they quote Matthew um, more than any of the other Gospels, almost three to one. Um, and anyone who's read a long book knows that uh, most of the time you quote mostly from the first part of it that you read. So um, so I just have this 
sense. I could be wrong. I could get to heaven and Mark could tell me that I was incorrect. But um, anyway, uh, Matthew's gospel sets the the themes, the mood, the the um, the presentation of uh, Jesus's life and his works um, very much for the rest of um, the New Testament. Although the Gospel of Luke really embodies what we call the Pauline Gospel, so the Gospel that Paul probably preached um, when he spoke um, aloud, much of what Paul does in his letters, many of the things that he references, he references things that are in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, uh, Paul kind of quotes the Old Testament the way that, that Matthew does. And so there's a lot that the rest of the New Testament has that's indebted to the Gospel of Matthew. But Matthew also has some very unique elements to it. Um, When we read the Christmas story or we tell the Christmas story in pageants, usually the focus is Mary. The the role that everybody wants is, um, that wants to be done well, is Mary. She's the mother of Jesus. And I spent a whole Advent series on Mary. And and Mary is an impressive, impressive young lady who grows into a a force of nature as a a mature woman. Um, There's no denying Mary's centrality uh, in the birth narrative. And Luke really emphasizes Mary. He focuses on her. She, She sings a song. The angels appear to her. But Matthew has a different focus. Matthew is focused on Joseph. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about five moments when Joseph is the hero of the entire story. You say, wait, 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 Jesus is the hero. Jesus is in utero at this point, okay? Um, So Jesus isn't doing a whole lot right now. It's Joseph who is going to set the stage for Jesus as the Messiah. And Matthew, who is a Galilean himself, like Joseph, um, Matthew probably knew knew, uh, Joseph. Um, He probably collected his taxes. I like to think he was his um, auditor, um, his uh, and. Joseph was paying taxes to Matthew and his father um, when he was going back and forth to the Sea of Galilee. Um, But Joseph has this very, very important role, more important really than even the short passage that he actually appears in. He's only in Matthew 1 and 2. That's that's pretty much all he does. And he doesn't have a lot of speaking parts. He's not really super involved, and yet he is very involved. So I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, and verse 18 as we look at Joseph. Um, as we, we opened last week, we started the series, we talked about the genealogies and, and how Joseph is the descendant of David. Um, so as the son of David, he's the claimant to the right of uh, the kingship of Israel and Judah. Uh, and that theme will come up over and over and over again. A um, couple of other things about Joseph. Uh, most people would say that Joseph was a carpenter. Um, that's one of those cases where a, a, a complicated word got translated by a simple thing, and so everybody just says he's a carpenter. If you ever saw The Passion of the Christ, there's this moment where Jesus makes a table, and Mary says it'll never catch on. Um, 
kind of this weird cartoony moment in that in that very dark movie. Um, it is very likely that Jesus was not a carpenter as we or Joseph was not a carpenter as the way that we think about it. Um, people did their own woodworking. You didn't really hire somebody to you know to to build your house. You you and your family did that. Um, probably Joseph did one of two things. Um, either Joseph was a um, a artisan of some kind that helped with the construction of the cities, the new cities in Galilee, Sepphoris and Sebasti and Tiberias, um, in which case he probably would have been involved in, in the construction trade. Um, so probably calling him a general contractor would have been a better way to describe that role. Um, and and that may exist because, that may be because if you, you actually watch what Jesus says, Jesus actually has a lot to say about the building of buildings. He talks about cornerstones and, and houses and things like that. Or Joseph may have been a shipwright um, building the ships, the boats that the fishermen sailed on the Sea of Galilee. And if you think about, if you read Jesus, he seems to be very, very familiar with that trade. Um, he, he, I mean, for one thing, at one point in the gospel, Jesus falls asleep in the back of a small boat. Anybody that's been on a small boat in a choppy sea knows that you had better be seaworthy to be able to do that. Uh, most of us are not falling asleep. We're more, risk, more at risk of falling out um, than falling asleep. Um, so he could have been one of those two trades. We don't really know. The scriptures don't give us any detail. Um, but uh, we do know that he's descended from David. We know um, that he, um, he's originally, his family is originally from Bethlehem. And we find that out in the book of Luke, although it doesn't really say that in Matthew. But we're going to pick up here in chapter 1 and verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, um, betrothed is a weird word, we'll come back to that, to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be child, be of, with child from the Holy Spirit. That had been an exciting conversation. And her husband Joseph, being a righteous or just man, a, a law observant, a Torah observant man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now this is the first moment that Joseph um, establishes the messiahship of Jesus. You say, how on earth does he do that? I'm glad you asked. Joseph was not Jesus's biological father. I think we all would agree with that. If you don't agree with me, we can talk about that. This is one of the fundamental ideas of the faith, the virgin birth of, Mary, of Jesus. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. 
Therefore, Joseph had no legal obligation to Jesus. The legal contract of betrothal was marriage. It wasn't like today where people get engaged and they stay engaged for 46 years until they finally, the woman finally wears them down and they get married, they have a big party and expect everybody to bring gifts. This is not what happened. All right? Uh, and I know people, I mean, I know people who have been engaged for like 15, 16 years. I'm like, oh, for crying out loud. Like, get over it. Just either, you know, put a ring on it or move on. Um, when this happened, and the age of betrothal, by the way, the age when this contract was usually entered, uh, a young woman usually entered this contract at the age of 12. Uh, now, they didn't get married. They didn't live together at that age. Um, they waited until um, the right time, till maturity, um, to be married. But there was this contract, and her father would give a dowry to the uh, the fiancé, for lack of a better term, and he would take that dowry and he would invest it and he would build it up and he would then take the principle of it and set it aside for her, for her provision in case um, he something happened to him, he died or whatever. Um, her money was her money. He would build up a, a uh, either build a house or um, build onto his parents' house or establish himself in a trade. He would be apprenticed and he would go and become a master in his trade. And then when, um, when he had established a home, he would come back and get his wife, not his fiance. She was legally his wife, even though they had not come together. Um, he would get her and they would have a big party and they would go home and they would establish a home and they would start having kids and all those kind of things. Now, what is likely going on here is Joseph is hard at work in Nazareth, up in Galilee, doing whatever he's doing, betrothed to this, this amazing woman, Mary, who is probably down in Judea about a week's walk away. Um, we know from the Gospel of Luke that she goes to stay with her, sister, her uh, cousin, Elizabeth, for a while, but she, she seems to live down there, so we don't know uh, exactly how this happened. But he's up in Galilee, and at some point he gets a message that says, Hey, Joseph, don't know how to break this to you. Mary is pregnant. Now, does Mary tell Joseph? Does a family member, does he, you know, somebody, you know, text him? I don't know how he finds out. But Joseph is a righteous man. He is a law, a Torah observant. He, he's in conformity to the law. That means he, he goes to synagogue regularly. He's probably been invited to read the, the Torah scroll during the service. He's, he's part of the minion, he's, he is, um, which is uh, the, the required minimum number of men in order to have a synagogue. Um, he seems to have a pretty good reputation. Later on in Jesus' life, they'll actually talk about Jesus as the son of Joseph. They know who he is. Joseph is perfectly within his rights to return the dowry so that Mary can provide for herself and her child and tell her to go back to her father's house to live in shame to raise that child without him. Joseph is totally within his rights to do that. And Matthew kind of gives us the idea that Joseph is somewhat reluctant. It says that he, in verse 19, he resolved to divorce her quietly. He's not, he doesn't want to make a big deal about this. He just wants to, he probably cares deeply for this woman. 
And so he's just going to take care of this. And an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. Now, if you were here last week, you know that I talked about how Matthew loves the imperfect analogy to the Old Testament. He loves to bring the Hebrew scriptures in. And isn't it interesting, I think Matthew, recounting this as he's sitting down to to write this, isn't it interesting that um, Jesus' father's name is Joseph, and an angel appeared to him in a dream, when in the book of Genesis, Joseph is the dreamer. Now Joseph is not, that Joseph in the Old Testament, he's, he's not an ancestor of this Joseph. This Joseph's descended from Judah. Um, he's, this is a different Joseph. But Joseph is the dreamer. God speaks to him in dreams. And here's Joseph. God speaking to him in a dream. The angel of the Lord will appear to Joseph several times. But there's a, a particular other analogy. So that's the obvious one, right? The Joseph one. That's an obvious one. It's like, okay, Joseph, Joseph. That's easy. Dream, dream. That's easy. But there's another analogy that's a little bit more in the weeds. So forgive me for a second if I kind of get into some stuff you may not be aware of. But let me, let me just talk about David real quick. David, everybody that knows me knows that David is my homeboy. I love David. Um, David in 2 Samuel, right? He stays home from war one season. He sees a young woman bathing on the roof. She's bathing of her impurity, which means, by the way, this young woman was probably, again, a young teenager. He sees her. He calls for her. Spends some time with her. She gets pregnant. He gets worried. He manipulates her husband, again, probably just like Joseph and Mary probably hadn't consummated the marriage. Her husband, he calls her back. He says, hey, go home to your wife. You know, see if you guys can have kids. Her husband is a soldier. He works for David. He refuses to go and, and go in um, and consummate their marriage. Instead, he stays out. He sleeps actually outside of the house. So Joseph then calls in his cousin, uh, David calls in his cousin Joab. He says to Joab, he says, hey, I need to get rid of this guy. Could you do me a favor? Put him on the front lines of the battle that we're in and maybe don't give him armor or something. And, And this young girl, Bathsheba, her husband Uriah is killed in battle. And then David goes, oh, I'm so sorry. Why don't you come be married to me? They have a child, and that child dies. Um, David grieves, Psalm 51. And then then she gets pregnant again. And this son is born. They call him Solomon. And the prophet calls him Jedediah, Jedediah, beloved of God. Now, under Torah law, technically, by the way, Solomon should have received the inheritance of Uriah. He should have been called Uriah's son, not David's son. So David would have had to actively, legally adopt Solomon as his son. Now he actually does this uh, twice. First, he names him. He names him Solomon. And then secondly, in 1 Kings... When uh, Solomon is in line to be king, David publicly declares that Solomon is his son. He legally adopts Solomon. So are you seeing the imperfect analogy between what Matthew's saying and Joseph here with David? Seeing it yet? 
not his son? Right? It's imperfect. It's not a perfect analogy. It's just kind of flipping in and out of focus. But there's also a moment at the end of Second Samuel when David has sinned again, this time sent, taken a census of the people when God commanded him not to, and as a result there is a plague sweeping through the people of Judah, through the city of Jerusalem, and David begs God to end the plague, and David sees a vision on the threshing floor of Aruna, which is a, a peak in Jerusalem, he sees the angel of the Lord standing at the edge of the disease and stopping the disease. And after that angel's gone, David goes and buys that threshing floor and it becomes the site of the Jerusalem temple, which Solomon builds. The son that although biologically was David's, who should have belonged to another, adopted by David to be the king, builds the temple for God. Now fast forward to Matthew chapter 1. Here is Joseph with a son who is not his. He doesn't have to love Jesus. He doesn't have to adopt Jesus. Jesus. He doesn't have to do anything, but then as Joseph, he sees a dream and in the dream as the son of David, the angel of the Lord appears to him. He tells him, this is what you should do. And because Joseph is a righteous man, he wakes up. He immediately says, I will step into the gap. I will adopt the child that is not mine because God has called me to do it. And although we don't catch it, at the end in verse 25, who names Jesus? Joseph. Because at that moment, Joseph takes Jesus to be his son. Jesus is not in the line of David until Joseph steps in and adopts him as his son. Now you say, what's up with the line about Emmanuel in verse 23? What's with the quote from Isaiah? I mean, we all know, Emmanuel, we all know the song with the God with us. Well, here's an interesting thing about that moment. Emmanuel, uh, this is my own kind of personal theory, but I think that Emmanuel is actually a name for Hezekiah, who's a king of Judah, who was actually, um, there's this weird moment where in order, if you read the genealogies, I'm not going to bore you with it, but if you read the genealogies, the only way that the guy who is credited with being his father, he would have had to have fathered Hezekiah at the age of 11. And if you read the prophecies in Isaiah 7 and 8, it seems that Emmanuel is that Hezekiah, this king, is actually the son of the previous king adopted by the current king to be in the line. And this kind of adoption thing actually happens all the time in the house of David. Uh, Zerubbabel, who's mentioned his name as the son of Shealtiel. If you actually read his genealogy, Shealtiel was his uncle who adopted him. 
See, there's this over and over this theme that um, that's going on through this line. And here's Joseph. The very first thing that Joseph does to confirm, confirm Jesus' messiahship as he adopts him as his son. Under no obligation other than obedience to God as a husband. Under no other obligation than obedience to God as a husband, he adopts this child as his own. He names him as God told him to name him. I would propose to you this is the only practical tip I'm going to give you today. There is nothing more powerful in the church than a man obedient to God despite all of the forces the otherwise who serves and loves Jesus. Joseph should be a model for every man and boy in the church because his priority was not even his own Torah righteousness. Do you know that by adopting this child, Joseph basically was telling the world that he had had premarital relationships with his wife? He was taking upon himself all of the condemnation that would have been leveled on Mary for having a child before the right time. He was taking upon himself. Now Matthew is very clear to make it, make it clear that Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. And yet Joseph takes on himself all the responsibility, all the blame, all of the discredit, everything that would be piled upon his wife and her child, he takes it on himself out of obedience to God. He makes this child, this illegitimate child, the claimant to the throne of Israel and Judah at the cost of his own righteousness in the eyes of everyone around him. And I would just ask a question to you. How important is it that you obey God in the moment when that obedience could cost you everything? How important is it that you love Jesus like Joseph loved Mary's unborn child who he believed to be God with us. See, without Jesus, without Joseph, the story takes a very different turn. We don't know how long he lived. We literally know nothing about this guy after Jesus turns 12. He disappears. Yet in the moment of the easy choice, by the way, the choice that would have been in conformity with the Old Testament law as it was interpreted at the time. He chose instead to love Jesus.
I have no idea how old Joseph was. Most depictions show him as being much older than Mary, you know, which always kind of creeped me out, to be honest. Like a 40-year-old Joseph and a 15-year-old Mary, I'm just not ready for that. I don't care how the ancient world worked. I actually happen to think Joseph was not much older than Mary was. 17, 18, 19 years old. This young couple willing to face the entire world for the love of their child. Without Joseph's moment here, the moment of decision, he chooses to love Jesus. I don't think there's anything more to say. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, the the prophet said multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. We are constantly confronted with realities that draw us away from loving you. I pray for the men of our church. I pray for the heart of Joseph for obedience in the face of the opposition of our world, but beyond obedience, love for Jesus, devotion to God with us. Father, I pray for those who journey with us, not yet come to a place of putting their faith in Jesus, Lord, that you would continue to build in them a heart to love Him. To stand up and be counted to choose. And Father, we pray too, because it's not just about the men. All of us have to stand up. All of us have to choose obedience and love. of Jesus over all the prices in the world, the condemnations, the darkness. Lord, may we have Joseph's heart in the face of all of that to love you above all else. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us and giving us the ability to love one another and you a little bit more. Thank you, God.